0: G'day, and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode, we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from scuba divers to marine biologists, citizen scientists, underwater photographers, and anyone with an intense passion for marine life. My name's Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures podcast is marine biologist and science writer Hannah Streger. And today we're going to be talking all about orcas, aka killer whales. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Matt. Looking forward to this.
0: No worries, it's exciting. So, just before we start, we have previously done an episode on orcas really early on in the show. And I just wanted to highlight for the audience that it was more about like swimming with them directly and photographing. However, today, Hana is going to illuminate a bit more information about these animals and some of the amazing stories that Hana has unearthed. So, start us off by telling us where you got such a passion for orcas, aka killer whales, from and how you ended up knowing so much about them.
1: Well, it was uh, actually a lot of coincidence involved in it. I was studying biology and... I went to the university cafeteria uh, and there was a long line and in front of me was this really tall guy. And because he was so tall, I knew who he was and I knew he was somewhat involved in something with killer whales. So I started chatting with him and he told me that he was going on an expedition to Norway next week. And I just said, wow, that sounds amazing. And I couldn't help myself. I just said, Is there any way I could come? And it turned out that they were still looking for somebody to be a cook on their boat. The same afternoon, I called the skipper, and uh, a week later, I was on the boat. And I was actually meant to be a a botanist, or that was what I had concentrated on. But that trip completely changed my life.
0: Wow. So I'm guessing you encountered quite a few orcas on that trip.
1: Yeah, I I did, but not... Maybe not so much as I had hoped or thought because, first of all, I was, I was cooking, so I had to, some, to stay on the boat a lot of the time where the others went out in small zodiacs. And, and also, uh, the weather was very often terrible. It was northern Norway in the late autumn, which means that it's very windy and open waters and also quite dark. But I had one... Encounter which stayed with me in a way that it helped make me that my decision to to change the direction of my studies and my life. One afternoon, this the same tall guy came back, and he knew I had not been out so much, so he said, "Well, we actually have killer whales outside the the harbor. If I wanted to come, so I hurried to get dressed and I jumped into this little boat, and we rushed out." And, of course, by the time we were in the area where the whales had been, they were gone. And it was the low-hanging clouds and not very interesting. And we were looking and looking and looking, and we didn't see anything. And then he took out a hydrophone and lowered it into the water. And he gave me the headphones. I, I don't know. I didn't really know what to expect. I just put the headphones on. And the first thing I heard was some distant humming from boats, uh, motor sounds. And then I heard these eerie sounds of killer whale calls, melodious, beautiful sounds of whales that were communicating underwater. And I had never heard anything like it. It was the contrast between sitting in that little boat on the top of the waves and the cold weather, and the gray clouds, and then these sounds from the sea. It was mind-blowing. And even more mind-blowing was the fact that we still didn't see them. They were there, obviously somewhere below us. We never, we never saw them, uh, at least not that afternoon. But the whole experience was so beautiful and unexpected that it, it changed my life.
0: Wow like it, so yeah it totally changed your research direction and and everything that that's incredible did you did get to see them though on the trip
1: yeah yeah i did get to see them and i had lovely encounters with killer whales both in that situation or in that place and in many other places i've i've worked in norway which is uh, maybe one of the best places in the world to to really see killer whales and the time when we started doing this. This was in the the 90s, uh, so it's a long time ago. And this was just 10 years after the Norwegians have actually stopped hunting killer whales. In a 10-year period, up until they stopped hunting them, which happened in 1982, I think they killed more than a 1,000 killer whales. That's a lot of animals, because even if they were quite common in some places in Norway, they're not very numerous. So to take a 1,000 individuals out of a population is a lot of animals. But they had they have become protected at that time. But the attitude to killer whales among lo- local people were still either hesitant or sometimes even hostile because they saw them as a competitor to the herring fishery. And they just didn't like them. You know, farmers don't like deer to come and graze their fields, or it's the same thing. There's an animal, it's taking away something that we also depend on. So it was a very, um, there was a hostile environment at that time. It was uh, part of the fascination of working in Norway was stepping into this field, trying to uh, change the relationship that people had with whales through research through communication through talks through pictures through uh, simply um, creating awareness of how incredibly interesting they are and what a gift it is for a country to have a huge population of killer whales
0: yeah I, i just have to ask quickly too why were they hunting the whales was it purely because they were worried about the herring fishery or was it because they were getting food or oil what was the cause
1: well, they didn't use the killer whales for food or oil. Some of the meat was sent to England, actually, to feed the animals in the fur industry, foxes and mink. But that closed, I think, around 1980 and or even before that. So after that, they only killed them because they saw them as said, it was sort of a pest control, but in the beginning it was both pest control and because they could sell the meat to the fur industry, uh, and in the end it was just, let's get rid of them.
0: And do people have a different opinion of orcas these days, especially in Scandinavia? Or
1: The change has been incredible. People in Norway now are proud of their killer whales and you you see that because there's a lot of whale watching now which didn't exist at that time there's a lot of merchandise with different kinds of whales but also uh, killer whales on they are on stamps uh, national stamps and also the Norwegian tourist board highlight them as something which is one of the best things that they have alongside the Aurora Borealis or Northern Lights and, and other things that they are really proud of. So it has become something that local people is very proud of. And this has happened, this transition in attitude has taken place over the last 30 years. And it's a really positive thing. I think it has also coincided with that the herring industry has done very well. What happened in the uh, 70s and 80s was that the herring fishery collapsed. So there was no herring left. And then they enforced very strict quotas so that the fishermen could take very, very, very little. And for a long time, there was practically no herring fishery. And then the herring started to recover. And now the herring fishery is booming. It's back to historic levels. And apparently people are seeing that the, even though killer whales do eat herring, it's not really influencing how much the fishery can take. So that they are seeing that, yes, they take, they take herring, but it doesn't affect how much we can catch. So there's also a better understanding of how the ecosystem works, that, it's, that the killer whales are actually not able to deplete the herring stocks, that what happened in the 70s was a result of overfishing, not that they were killer whales.
0: Yeah, wow. And what is the population of killer whales? in norway these days
1: well nobody really knows i think if you go to areas like the pacific northwest where killer whales have been researched and documented for 40 50 years they they have very accurate numbers so they know that the southern resident population is 71 individuals or whatever it is right now and the northern resident population is 300 and 50 or 60 individuals, so they know all the individuals by name or number. If you go to Norway, it's more complicated because there's a lot more whales. There are estimated more than 3,500. Just in northern Norway doesn't count all the whales that are in the North Atlantic. And some of these may be going back and forth between the coast, and sometimes they are part of the North Norwegian population, other times they are just out in the Atlantic. No one can say for sure how many, but it's a lot of killer whales, or it's at least compared to the numbers that are known from, for instance, the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. and Canada, there's a lot more killer whales.
0: Yeah. So I'll take a step back first as well. Tell us a a little bit about what an orca or a killer whale is and why we kind of have two names. I know in Australia, I keep calling them orcas, a lot of people overseas refer to them as killer whales, but tell us what they are yeah. and why the name.
1: Yeah. That's a really good question. First of all, orcas or killer whales are uh, mammals and they belong in the order of Cetacea, which is all kind of whales and dolphins. But killer whales are actually dolphins. They are the biggest dolphin species in the world. So they are just big. Black and white dolphins, and the name orca or killer whale. Uh, I call them killer whales, and I really apologize if that's offensive to some people. And I, I think it might be because you you are told that you you know you shouldn't call them killer whales because you're focusing on you're making them monsters. Or, but to me, orca is not very much better. Its the scientific name is uh, or sinus orca. And it literally means the demon from the underworld. Uh, that's the, the Latin and Greek roots of the world. So it's not a lot better. And sometimes I call them orcas, and sometimes I'm calling killer whales. And neither of them are actually very good at describing just how incredibly interesting and specialized these animals are. They live all over the world. There is literally not a spot where you can't find them. It doesn't mean they're numerous. They're not numerous anywhere, but they could be in the tropics, and sometimes they are. They can be in Antarctica or around the Northern Pole, and sometimes they are. They can be close to the coasts, and you can also sometimes find them really far offshore. So they are. there's no place where you can say that you would never find an orca or killer whale here. But they are more common in temperate waters and they are more coastal than they are oceanic or um, or deep water species. So chances are that if you are in an area with temperate waters, uh, cold waters and close to the coast, that's that's more likely. So some of the hot spots are, I already mentioned, Pacific Northwest, but also uh, Norway, of course, Iceland. There are some uh, now around uh, Greenland, but they're not not very numerous around Greenland. There are a population around the British Isles. There are some around Spain and Portugal, and maybe we should discuss them too because they are doing a behavior which is really, really, really unheard of and strange. And then, if you go to the the southern side of the globe, you can find them in Australia, New Zealand, Patagonia, uh, South Africa. Yeah, they're everywhere.
0: The list goes on and on. Just, just thinking about their name, killer whale or orca, like demon from below, I know a lot of photographers in Australia who take photos of them or have seen them in Australia. And one thing that kind of gets me with the name is that I know that they're kind of infamous here for hunting baby whales. That, that's one of their um, the things, and great white sharks. So I guess, yeah, I kind of see the killer whales an interesting name for them. But, I mean, I, I just said baby whales and sharks, but what else do killer whales eat or orcas eat?
1: Well, th- yeah, it is true. Sometimes they eat baby whales and sharks and seals and penguins, rays and herring and salmon. But the thing about orcas or killer whales is that they are, always or almost always food specialists. So those that eat herring are specialized in herring and that's what they eat. They may occasionally eat other types of fish if it's around or if there's no herring but finding herring and rounding up the herring which is a schooling fish demands a special technique where they corral the herring, they swim around them, they turn the white side of their bellies towards the herring to scare them into a tight, tight school and then they slap them with the tails. That's a very specialized behavior and it takes a lot of training to be good to do that and to live from herring this way. So the herring eating killer whales are specialized in that and the same goes with the baby whale or even larger whales, there are examples of killer whales um, uh, attacking and eating grown-up whales, which is unusual, but it has happened. It's also a very specialized technique, which they don't, they can't switch from one thing to another just like that. It takes a lot of training. And you could, all, you could say that it's a, it's a culture that a special group of killer whales have that we do it this way. That's how we find our food, that's how we kill our food, that's how we eat our food. So whenever you see killer whales, they are they are always specialized in food source and in the techniques involved to eating that food.
0: Yeah, and so you said culture of whales, and I think that's such a crazy thing because not many animals that we know of or we refer to as having culture, and you mentioned Spain and Portugal whales, but tell us a little bit about how their culture kind of extends beyond just what their food is and and some of the crazy cultures that you've you've come across
1: yeah i think culture was first mentioned in connection with killer whales when dr john ford in canada found out that each group of killer whales each part of killer whales that he studied locally in the canadian waters had their own group specific dialect their own repertoire of sounds that only this group had. They could share a few calls with another group, but the repertoire that they had was always distinct from each group. So he could actually tell the groups apart just by listening to them. The sounds are, that's a learned behavior. And when a learned behavior is something that you have in a group and it is transmitted in generations, that's actually what we call culture. And this is what I studied in Norway that that late afternoon where I heard them underwater was just tricked something on me. So I ended up studying their underwater calls in Norway to see if Norwegian killer whales also had this culture of having group-specific call dialects. And they did. So it has been established since a long time ago that they have this culture when it comes to the way they communicate. But they also have it. With other things. And the whales that I mentioned before around Spain and Portugal, they started in 2020 doing something which may be a cultural thing, something that they learn and transmit to other animals in the group, which is that they swim up to sailing vessels and then they start whacking the rudder. And it sounds completely crazy. And the people who have been on these sailing vessels and experienced it. I've never experienced anything as frightening as having a group of killer whales attacking their boats, biting the rudder, ripping it to pieces, making the boat unmaneuverable. And in 2020, there were 52 documented so called interactions between killer whales or ORCAS in Portugal and Spain. This was the first year it was seen. It has never been seen before, never seen in other areas of the world. In 2021, that number climbed to 197. So that's almost four times as much. Some of these boats, about half of them are so damaged that they have to be towed to the harbor. In 2022, the number continued to climb. It's more than 200 and the two boats were sunken by killer whales. They simply people had to abandon the boats and go in the life rafts and their boats sunk because of holes that had been made when presumably obviously these boats couldn't be expected afterwards but presumably when they had hit the the rudder so hard that it had managed to make a hole in the hull. Wow,
0: and so it's just the rudder, and then I'm guessing by the numbers, it's not just one orca that's out there being, you know, with a specialized kind of behavior. It's it's a whole group of them. Why are they doing it?
1: Well, in the beginning, it was just three individuals, and now it's fifteen. So it's a it's a culture that's spreading. Nobody understands why they're doing it. If you ask the local scientists, their answer is, we haven't got a clue. There are three hypotheses. One is that the animals have experienced at some time what the scientists call an adversive uh, experience. Perhaps a boat has accidentally hit a whale and that whale was injured or maybe even uh, died from it. And thus, this is some kind of reaction to what happened to one of their group members. Another explanation is that the area is very heavily trafficked. There's a lot of noise, ship's noise. And also uh, the animals are suffering very much from pollutants, They have very high levels of organic pollutants in their tissue. So the combined stresses of environmental factors, which are not very good, could make them do this. And the third explanation is that this is just something that they are doing because they think it's kind of fun, that it's a Plaything that they are are doing it just because they can it 's like the equivalent animal equivalent of hooligans and and they may not understand that they are damaging something or they are scaring people. they just think that the boat is interesting. I spoke to one of the crew members of one of the boats that sank, and he said that at no point did he feel that the animals were aggressive. I mean, he was obviously worried about the boat sinking, but he he didn't really think that the animals were after them. They were after their boat. That's what his impression was. But other people have said that they have been terrified and they felt that the animals were aggressive. But maybe this guy that I spoke to, he was a biologist, so he was used to looking at animals, interpreting behavior. So maybe he was uh, had a, a way of judging behavior which is a bit more skilled than a normal sailor who has never seen a killer whale before would interpret their behavior.
0: Yeah, I mean, I imagine if an orca came up and attacked a boat I was on, you, you would be scared and you would be thinking it was going for you, even if it was just playing a game of tag with the rudder. It, it does sound more like a fun game, doesn't it?
1: I don't have an opinion on what it is i i have no idea i think all the free hypothesis uh, is a possibility but it's certainly a possibility that it is just a game that they just think this is awesome
0: yeah i mean it it also kind of brings me to like another question i kind of had which was i mean you said they maybe they're doing it for revenge or a whale was injured and so they've taken boats to be negative because they do have a boss killer whale and it's usually a grandmother. It's usually a matriarchal society. Is that correct?
1: It's, yeah. Studies which have been done everywhere in the world pretty much documents that they are always organized around a matriline, line and the females are the individuals that get oldest. They, are, they can be 80 years old and who is the boss and who is not the boss is hard to say because we, we can't really see how decisions are made. But it's known that society is organized around the female's family. So if you have a, at least the populations which are most well known, the female's, Their offspring will be in their group and it will stay in the group, whereas uh, they probably mate outside the group, or if they didn't, they would be terribly inbred, but they meet other groups all the time. So there's plenty of opportunity to meet males outside the group that they travel in, but when they split up, they always split up along their matriline, line. So you'll have the grandmother, you'll have her daughters, you'll have the daughter's offspring, and so on, In that, including the grown-up males in that group. Oh, wow. Yeah, they have very, very stable societies where they have these fixed travel patterns, who they stay with, who they travel with. So if we see some killer whales, uh, we'll see, okay, that individual is there or that individual there, then the others should be there as well. Oh, there they are. So you can often predict who they'll be with and they'll show up.
0: Do they ever travel alone or is that just like a solitary male might travel alone or does that behavior happen?
1: I think every time we see a lone killer whale, we look around to see where the rest are because they, they're very rarely... Completely alone, they can uh, they can spread out. Uh, maybe sometimes for finding food, and so you can encounter them alone. But most often, the rest of the group will be somewhere in the vicinity. There are some individuals that have been alone and had ended up traveling alone, and we know some of these quite well because they've been seeking human company or fairy company. So. But in these cases, they have for some reason or another been split up from their natal family. And actually, in in my book, uh, I'm telling the story of one of these whales that was separated from its mother at a very early age and got away from the whole group and ended up in the harbor of Seattle where it was following a small ferry and was very attracted to people and came up to them in their rowing boat. And then it was found out that mother was probably dead and the authorities managed to successfully transfer it to its natal group where it's still living today. Now it's it's almost 20 years ago and it's still traveling with its natal group and it has calves of its own by now. But that's the only story i know of where a single killer whale has returned to become a family member again most often these stories end a little bit tragic with a whale that follows a boat maybe gets too close to a propeller and and dies or they live a a single life the the rest of their time
0: yeah i mean that's that's an incredible story it's amazing that they actually found the group because this is another little side question but like, how would they find their natal group? Say they went fishing, they're, they're like, you know, 20, 30 kilometers away. Is it all sound or would they meet somewhere? How, how would that work?
1: Yeah, I suspect that if they are spread out in an area, so spread out that if we see one whale and we can't see the others, they communicate underwater and they know very well where the rest of the group is because they can hear each other. You know, the story I told you when I heard the killer whales underwater and they were at least 10 nautical miles away. There was nothing to be seen. It was flat calm. And yet we could still hear them very clearly. Sound travel extremely well underwater. And their sounds are, are quite loud. So there's no doubt that even if we can't see them and they seem very far away, they are connected by a web of sounds underwater.
0: So... I want to mention, you mentioned your book before, which has got all these amazing tales, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But there's one tale in there that kind of is really an Australian tale, isn't it? Or I don't know if it's occurred elsewhere, but it's about orcas helping people hunt. Tell us a little bit about that one.
1: Yeah, that story, I think, is probably the most extraordinary story about killer whales or orcas that ever existed. It's a story of European whalers coming to to Eastern Australia, to Twofold Bay, south of uh, Sydney, and uh, starting a whaling station there. And one of these whalers found out that the killer whales had a relationship with Aboriginal people in the area, These people were the Ewing uh, tribe, and they had a special relationship with uh, not just killer whales, but also with dolphins, actually. It worked the way that when he had these people on the boat to be helpers in the whaling operations, they taught him that they could use the killer whales to catch the great whales. So the whalers were not after killer whales. They were after uh, humpback whales. They were after... Uh, right whales and sometimes also uh, blue whales but especially right whales and humpback whales and these are really large whales and the whalers in this is we're talking 1840s here they were not after the meat the meat was not interested uh, interesting to the whales they were only after the blubber so that they could melt it and get the oil and uh, they learned these whalers that if they just left it To the killer whales, the killer whales will feast on the tongue and the lips of the great whales. And then they would leave it after a day or two when they had their share. And then the whalers could just go out and take the whale to the shore and get the blubber, which was obviously still on the animal. And this developed into a uh, partnership between killer whales and whalers, which lasted for more than probably more than 100 years. It's been documented from 1940s to 1930. And it's documented extremely well in newspaper articles and even photographs. And it was so well established that the killer whales would go out and discover the great whales. They would swim to the whaling station. They would alarm the people in the whaling station that something was going on in the offshore waters by slapping their tails. That would make the whalers go into their rowing boats and they would follow the killer whales all the way out to the whale field where the killer whales had discovered a humpback or a right whale. And once they encountered the great whale, they would help the whalers catch it by harassing the whale, by biting its flippers, by throwing themselves on the blowhole. Exactly the same things that killer whales do when they are chasing a great whale for their own consumption. But in this case, they let the whalers do the hard work of actually catching and killing a whale. And it's a, it's, it makes sense because it's a dangerous thing to do for killer whales to attack a great whale. They can get injured very much by the flippers or the tail fluke of the great whales. So it makes sense that the killer whales thought, well, we can cooperate doing this, that lessens the risk for us. And then the whalers left the whale to the killer whales. They they put a buoy on it so that they could find it again. Usually it would sink and the whale would eat on it, and then it would refloat a few days later when the gases started to build up in it, and the whole cycle would continue. This collaborative partnership between whales and whalers lasted three generations of whalers. It was one specific family who had uh, aboriginals enrolled as whalers in their crew who did this, and, and they were called the Davisons. And it obviously also lasted through several generations of killer whales because they have more or less the same generation length as we have. So it's an incredible example of a partnership between wild animals and people that is not really matched by anything in the world.
0: Wow, that's the most incredible story I think I've heard of an animal. Like Just the fact that they knew where to go, they knew how to alert, it, it's really incredible. So I guess that has to bring me to your book. So your book has got all these kind of amazing tales in it. Tell us a little bit more about it and a little bit more of what you can expect from it and any other cool details.
1: Well, what I, I wanted to look at was how ambiguous our relationship to killer whales have been. Most of us including me, think that killer whales or orcas are just the most beautiful, fascinating, majestic, interesting, intelligent creatures that you could find in the wild world. But it wasn't always so. They have really been vilified and persecuted, and in some places they still are. And I wanted to highlight how we both fear and hate and love and treasure these animals, and this is a fate I think that killer whales share with other large predators. Large predators are often the victim of our fear, for good reason. We should fear lions and tigers, and and maybe we should also fear sharks or crocodiles. I mean, there, there's a reason that we fear them, but that shouldn't prevent us from admiring them and being interested. In them. And so it's this on the one hand side fear, and the other hand side love that I've been looking at. Uh, And I, I have collected stories pretty much from all over the world of how we used to fear them and how we now love them or treasure them. And what does it take to change our opinions? What is needed for us to better understand and better appreciate? Wild animals and wild wild predators, so I collected stories from Norway Iceland Greenland Australia United States Canada, even Russia to uh, illustrate some of these points
0: yeah oh, i can't I can't wait to read it fully it's going to be really cool well, just before we wrap up the show, I usually finish with a cool a few cool facts so tell us a few like cool or quirky or really weird facts about orcas that most people probably wouldn't know.
1: Okay, one of the really interesting stories f- for me is something that has been developing the last 10 years in Norway. Killer whales were gone from the coastal areas pretty much from 2000 to 2010 because the herring was offshore in those years. Apparently herring can do that. And then in 2010, the herring started to come back to the shores in northern Norway in great numbers, huge numbers, a lot of herring. And much to the surprise of all of us, actually, they weren't just accompanied by killer whales, as was expected, but also by humpback whales. Humpback whales also eat schooling fish, and they certainly also like herring. But in most places of the world, humpback whales will try to get away from areas where there are killer whales. They avoid killer whales. They hear the sounds of killer whales and they swim in the other direction. But here, when there's so much herring, the humpback whales really don't care about the killer whales. So we had them all in the same waters which is pretty cool. And of course, the reason that there's humpback whales now in big numbers is that humpback whale numbers are climbing all over the world. It's really one of those species that is bouncing back from the heavy industrial whaling. So now humpback whales are becoming more and more common. That was wonderful. So they were mingling in the places where the herring was. You would have both of them. But what we saw was that some. it looks as if the killer whales are doing the hard job of rounding up the herring, which is, you know, swimming around them, corralling them. And we can always tell this behavior because we can see that the killer whales are swimming round. There's a lot of seagulls in the air and we can also see they haven't started feeding yet because when... They start feeding, there'll be dead herring on the surface and the seagulls will start swooping down. So we know exact moment when they start feed. We can see, okay, they're rounding up, there's a whole school of herring down there. And then the humpbacks will move in and they would move in like a motorcycle gang. It would be four, three or four humpback whales coming shoulder to shoulder and they are brought back and they would move in, and then they would disappear right before our eyes, like, where did they go? And then they would come up, shoot up like rockets from below, wide open mouths, and scoop up all the herring that the killer whales so meticulously had arranged for them. That's at least what it looks like to us. That They are taking an advantage of the killer whales doing the hard job, by corralling the fish and then they're scooping them up. And the killer whales are in the periphery of this. If if a group of humpback whales is is there, they, they can't they can't compete with that. So they're kind of they look tiny compared to the humpback whales. So that's a really interesting dynamic. And another dynamic which involves both species is that they are they have picked up on the herring vessels. And herring vessels put out their purse seine net, they start to pull it together. And once they start pulling it together, both killer whales and humpbacks actually pick up these sounds. And they just travel sometimes five, six, eight miles to get to the place where they can hear a herring boat is now taking in the net. And so you'll see a herring boat and it'll be completely surrounded by killer whales and humpback whales because there's a lot of spillover when they take in their catch and they benefit from that so that's there are some interesting dynamics that we are seeing in the area yeah
0: wow i mean especially because orcas are top of the food chain they are the they are the big dog and to be outdone by a pack, i just love that like a little motorcycle gang that's an amazing analogy
1: that's what it looks like. It looks like we know we're bigger than you, and we're taking over now. Can you please step aside?
0: <laughs> well, I guess that's the thing. A humpback whale by itself is probably, you know, as we spoke before, not a big threat. But quite a few of them, I imagine, you wouldn't want to be in between them.
1: No, you wouldn't. They are—they uh, are really, really, really big. We have—I uh, worked with a lot of film teams, uh, and often we have divers in the water. Either snorkeling or with with the tanks on, and they're not afraid of the killer whales because the killer whales are really not very interested in them. But if the humpbacks come, they need to back off because they're just too big. I mean, they obviously they're interesting to film too, but you don't want to be in between them, and you certainly don't want to be above them when they scoop up from below to 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 get a whole school of herring.
0: Yeah, has that ever happened or has that come close to happening? Someone literally swallowed by a whale?
1: Yeah, it has happened. Uh, there was, a, I think, a lobster man in Maine or New Hampshire who was diving down and suddenly everything just became black. And he realized that he had been engulfed by a killer whale. and uh, No, not a killer whale, a humpback whale. And he was—it spat him out again, and he had some bruises, and I don't know if he broke a rib or two. Was taken to hospital. It happened a few years ago, and it uh, (laughs) was—it's an interesting story. But unfortunately, he he didn't film it.
0: Ah damn. Uh, Well, that kind of brings us to the end. But before we go, tell us a little bit about what your book's called, when it's coming out, where we can find it.
1: It's called The Kilowell Journals, Our Love and Fear of Orcas. And it's published uh, April 11th. And I think you can get it on all kind of retailers, no matter where you are in the world. You, of course, Amazon, Barnes and & Nobles, And uh, I, I think all my local bookshops here, or the, at least their e-platforms, uh, uh, will have it available.
0: Awesome. Cool. Well, I'm definitely going to read it because it just sounds awesome but thank you very much for being on the show
1: thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure
0: hey just before we finish up i forgot to get hane to talk about her instagram and her website which are awesome places you can view more of her work so check out her instagram which is hane streger and her website which is www.hanestrega.com and that's h a are. So go and check them out, because she's got some awesome photos of Walkers up there. Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see my photographic work on my website, which is www.mtunderwatermedia.com, or my Instagram, which is matt underscore testoni underscore photography. If you like the show, jump onto our Patreon account, which is patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can give a small donation to help with the running costs of the show. And excitedly, this is one of the first episodes recorded with a new microphone set that Patreon has allowed us to get here. So that's really exciting. And I just want to say a big thank you to all our Patreons so far. Production assistance by George McGrath. And music by the talented and awesome Dan Musil. So a big shout out to Dan for his theme song work. Coming up next time on the Secrets Podcast, we're going to be talking all about Squid. With underwater photographer Maddie Smith. This has been the Secretures Podcast. Over and out.